All right, so we're jumping into First Peter today. Um, Jerry's not here today. He's sick, and he's texting me like as we speak. So he's at home watching, and I'm sure he'll keep texting me and, and joking with me all throughout the sermon. But uh, you all could pray for him, and then just others in the church body. There's things that are going on um, and that are happening. And Nan's in the back. She's holding up uh, the First Peter journals. If you, f- for some reason, want one right now and you don't have one, you're welcome to go grab those. Uh, we are asking you to give five bucks for those just to help cover the cost. But that's the journal throughout First Peter. Um, and you're welcome to write in it kind of as we go and stuff. So I encourage you guys to do that if you're interested. So if you don't know me or you're new, my name is Sam. I'm one of the pastors here at Redstone Church. And I get the pleasure of preaching today, which is an awesome thing. Um, So if you were here with us last year, we walked through the entire book of Ephesians for pretty much the entire year last year, with the exception of summer and and Advent season. And if you were here, I hope that you found that to be truly impactful in your walk with Jesus, to just go through a book slowly, a chapter, a verse, and see that God's word truly is active and alive and will accomplish his purposes. And so similarly, this year, we're going through 1 Peter. We're going to start it today, and we're going to go all the way until summer through the book of 1 Peter. And then I'm hoping in the fall, we'll be able to come back to 2 Peter as well. But just like last year, we're going to go slowly, section by section, all throughout this wonderful epistle. And as we're doing so, I really encourage you guys, too, to try to make an effort to read 1 Peter all throughout the week. It's a really short letter, just a few chapters, and it won't take you long to read one chapter a day, each and every day. And I guarantee that if you immerse yourself in this letter alongside of us as we're reading and studying it together, that you won't be sorry by the end of it, that God will do some amazing things. So make a note, put it in your phone if you need to, read one chapter of 1 Peter every single day, and it's going to be great. But let's start our time together by actually reading through it. So I'm in 1 Peter chapter 1, and we're going to cover the first five verses of 1 Peter today. So the word of the Lord says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. And so this is 1 Peter 1, 1 through 5. And so the reality that I've learned in studying um, these five verses is there's way more here than I have time to talk about in this particular sermon, at least a sermon that's not three hours long and won't, uh, won't tempt some of you guys to, to leave partway through it. So there's so much that's here. There's some beautiful truths to know. There's some amazing biblical doctrine that we're really going to take way more time than even what we have together to be able to go into. You, you would take weeks and weeks of studying to begin to truly understand these wonderful doctrinal truths. 
And all of these things that are here in these first five verses, what they should, and I hope to, to show you guys today, will result in is our worship of God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit for what they do. So just real quick in way of a little bit of background information, because it's the beginning of the letter and it's helpful to understand a little bit about what's going on. Um, in case you missed it, in our weekly email each and every week, we posted a link to a YouTube video of Bible Project. They do a great job um, of just kind of illustrating what's going on in a book and giving you the overview. So if you want a little bit more in-depth overview, I would encourage you to go check that out on YouTube. Um, but just for us today, I just want to talk very briefly about the author, who it was written to, and the problem that was going on before we really get into the meat of our passage today. And so this letter, it was written by the Apostle Peter. Um, technically speaking, if you read through it, it's written by a guy named Silvanus, who was the scribe for Peter, as Peter is kind of speaking the words to be written down and sent out. But this is significant for a couple of different reasons. One, because it's an actual apostle of Jesus Christ. He was one of the 12 disciples who, after Christ's ascension, his entire purpose in life is to spread the good news of the gospel and to help build the kingdom of God, the church of God. And so this is the Peter, right? Not only one of the 12, but one of the three who were closest to Jesus Christ and who God, or Jesus specifically said that he was his rock that he would build his church upon. And so he's telling everyone about what Christ has done. And so just in this little bit, I want us to understand, um, you know, who Peter is, because his backstory is actually pretty significant. His testimony, just like our testimony, is a wonderful tool that God uses to talk about what Jesus Christ has done in our lives. So Peter, being one of the twelve, one of the three, he had a very significant relationship with Jesus, obviously. And in his walk with Jesus, literally when Jesus was on the earth, he did some things really, really well like confessing that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and really kind of being a powerful tool and an outspoken person. But he also did some things really, really poorly. So much so that one time Jesus told him to get behind him Satan, right? And so this is the Peter that we're reading about. And not only that, but if you look at towards the end of Christ's time on earth, as he's about to go and to be crucified, right before that, um, Jesus is telling the disciples for the several time, right? He's done it multiple times. Here's what is about to happen to me, and you all will scatter. And Peter's like, no, 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 I will not run away. I am there with you to the end, no matter what, because that was who Peter was. And he wanted to speak that. And Jesus is like, oh, no, Peter, you're going to deny me three times before morning. And that's exactly what happened. The strong disciple denied his Lord when he needed him most, three separate occasions. But even though that happened, that's not where Jesus left Peter, right? If you go look in the Gospels, look in the Gospel of John specifically, there's this beautiful exchange that takes place after Christ um, has been resurrected. And so there's one point where Peter and some of the other disciples, they're fishing. And I assume if I was Peter, I'm probably wallowing in despair, right? My Lord is dead. I denied him three times when he needed me most. And he's feeling absolutely terrible in this moment. And so when they're fishing, they're coming back to shore, and they see somebody on the shore, and they realize that it's Jesus Christ standing on the shoreline. So Peter jumps out of the boat and rushes up to Jesus, and this beautiful exchange takes place, where three separate times Jesus asks Peter if he loves him, one time for each previous denial. And Peter says, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he tells him to feed and tend to his sheep. 
because Jesus had more for Peter to do, more to do for his church. And so understanding that this letter was written by the Apostle Peter is a beautiful thing for us because we can see that Jesus Christ can use anybody he so chooses for his glory and for his kingdom, even someone who had denied him three times when he needed him most. So it's really, really impactful to see that Peter is writing this letter, and it's an awesome thing for us to understand as well. And so Peter's writing his letter. He's writing it to a specific people group, right? So for us, when we study God's word, we need to understand first, like, who is it written to and what was going on that time period before we even get to how does it impact us. And so the letter tells us it's written to some Christians, specifically in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. And so these places are all in and around modern-day Turkey, if you want to go check it out on a map. And so some of these Christians, they were Jewish Christians living outside of Jerusalem. And interestingly, if you were to go back and look at the book of Acts, at this moment after the Holy Spirit has come at Pentecost, and Peter is preaching this amazing message that results in thousands of people coming to Jesus Christ, a few of the people groups that are listed in that moment are some of these people that this letter is written to. And so I have to wonder if perhaps some of those Jewish Christians that came to faith in that moment have gone back to these places, and that has resulted in some Jewish people, I mean Gentile people coming to faith. And so you have Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians in these churches that Peter, who previously proclaimed this gospel message, is writing a letter to. Pretty incredible to think about. And so Peter, he's writing this letter to specific people, and it's ultimately because they have some hardships, right? There's lots of things going on, um, but primarily the main thing that's happening is that they are being persecuted for their faith. Just like us, they find themselves a minority of Christ followers in a secular world that they're living in, and they're facing persecution because of it. And so Peter is offering them some encouragement. He's reminding them the truth of the gospel. He's reminding them of the hope that they have in Jesus Christ so they can then face any trial that comes their way. And so as we get into the main verses, there's a couple things I want to point out in the first couple of verses, and then we'll spend the bulk of our time in the last three verses. Um, And I'm hitting this much faster than I want to. I wish we'd go a lot slower and, and spend more time in these. But beginning in verse 1, Peter writes to those who were elect exiles of the dispersion. And so I want to look at those two words real quick, elect and exile, and really understand what those mean before we move on. So the word elect in simplest terms is defined to choose. In this case, he's saying that they are chosen by God. And so this is where we get the doctrine of election and where that comes from, at least one of the places in Scripture anyway. And regardless of your particular stance or understanding of what election is or what it means, I think that we can all uh, celebrate the sovereignty of our God and his goodness in all things. And understand in his goodness, he has chosen um, these people, and he's not only chosen them, but chosen them specifically to be exiles in this particular instance. And so the word exile means the state of being barred from one's country. So again, some of them, they are Jewish Christians living outside of Jerusalem. Um, But I think what's more important and what most commentators agree is that this exile that he means is more of a spiritual exile. And so what he's saying is if you are a Christ follower, you are in exile, meaning that you belong to another kingdom, to another world, to another king, But God, in his sovereignty, has chosen for you to live in these particular places. 
And so if you are a Christian as well, then you are technically an exile, a sojourner in this world. You belong to King Jesus and to his kingdom, but he has chosen for you to be a sojourner wherever it is that you are living. And I think this is an important point for us to remember because we all have the tendency as Americans to be very nationalistic people, right? To say like, well, I'm an American or I'm a Tennessean or an East Tennessean or whatever the case may be. And I I do this a lot myself um, of thinking like, this is who I am. This is where I belong. These are my people. And while that's true to some degree, what is more true is who Jesus says that I am. And so instead, I am a Christian. I'm a Christ follower. I'm a disciple of Jesus Christ. I've been purchased and redeemed, made righteous by Jesus Christ. I am an adopted son of the king, a royal ambassador, a priest, a witness to the things that Christ Jesus has done in my life. And I just so happen to sojourn in the Tri-Cities. And that's true for all of us. We need to remember that our identity belongs ultimately somewhere else. And that doesn't mean we remove ourselves from the world. It means that God has sovereignly placed us as exiles to live in the house and neighborhood in which we each live, to work in the job in which we are working, and to interact with the people in which God has called us to interact with on a regular basis. God in his sovereignty has chosen each of us to live in these places, to work in these places for his glory, for his kingdom, and to proclaim the wonderful mercies of our God. So understanding these words and what they mean of elect and exile and that sort of thing and how it impacted those believers, how it impacts us. Let's turn our attention to three truths that I have for us today. So these are in your worship guide if you want to write them down or somewhere else or if you just want to have in the back of your mind. First one's already on the screen. So I have three truths and these truths are what God has done, is doing, and will do for us. The first one is God has caused us to be born again. And I don't want to allow any of us to gloss over that for a minute. Because if you've been a Christ follower for any length of time, you're like, yeah, yeah, that's like the elementary principles, right? Like, I've got that. I understand that. But it is a truly profound thought to think about the fact that the creator of the entire universe, holy and perfect as he is, has chosen sinful creatures like you and me and has taken them and caused them to be born again, to be spiritually renewed. So reread verses two through three real quick. It says, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And so when we understand just these simple couple of verses, and we try to break them down, and it says, according to God's great mercy. Mercy means compassion or forgiveness shown towards someone whom it is within one's power to punish. See, the reality is that this holy God of the universe, he has it within his rights to punish us for our sins. And outside of Jesus Christ, it's exactly what he will do. And God's word is very clear on this. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death. That is the reality 
of what we are owed if we are outside of Christ. Our sin is deserving of death. Our holy and just God, he will not allow sin to go unpunished. And yet, God has shown us great mercy, great compassion, great forgiveness. He has caused us to be born again. That's truly an amazing thing, and that's what the gospel, that's what it proclaims to each of us each and every day. God has caused us to be born again, and when we genuinely believe in Jesus Christ and what he has done, then we are no longer spiritually dead, but we are made alive together in Christ Jesus. So let me say it again. God has caused us to be born again. Think about that and allow it to just pierce your heart with the amazing truth of the reality of what that means. It is absolutely essential, even as a Christ follower, to be reminded of the gospel each and every day. Let me just paint a picture for you for what's at stake here. If we quickly walk away from this fact and we forget about the full extent of the gospel, we're just like, oh yeah, there's just kind of the ABCs of understanding the gospel, I'm saved, and that sort of thing, and we kind of move on then we miss out on so much. I mean, the the fullness of the gospel, this overwhelmingly and seemingly insurmountable reality of the depths of our sinful nature, the fact that we deserve death and separation from God for all eternity for our sins, and then because of the love and the grace and the mercy of our God, whose love is far greater than anything we can ever imagine. It's far greater than any depth of our sin. He has forgiven us through Jesus Christ and made us alive. Think back on Ephesians chapter 2 from last year. It's a beautiful picture of the gospel. It talks about how we were dead in our trespasses and sins. In case you need help in understanding it, dead means dead. And a spiritually dead person cannot make themselves spiritually alive. A dead thing cannot raise itself. That's the reality of who we are outside of Christ. And yet, our God has chosen to intervene and to make us alive in Christ Jesus. And we easily forget that because we tend to get caught up in the things that are going on in our world and our lives. And we find ourselves you know, forgetting these truths, or maybe we're sinning again and again, and and we're struggling to understand what all that means, and, and to think, like, how can I ever be forgiven for these things? But we forget what Christ has done for us. And if we are somebody who kind of, like, brushes it off, like, yeah, yeah, that's true, and we forget the reality of the beautifulness of the gospel picture, then we're a pitiful people, And how will we ever convince anyone else to desire Christ Jesus if that's our kind of take on the gospel? If we easily forget the immensity of the gospel. If we forget that we are born again to a living hope, then we will be a joyless people who don't speak to others about Christ Jesus and what he's done. This is something similar that James refers to in chapter 122. It says, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forget what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, 
and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. And so while James is here speaking of actually doing what what Jesus has commanded of us, what God calls us to in his life, the same is true for the gospel. So don't peer at the beauty of the gospel message on a Sunday morning and walk away untouched and not allow it to impact your day-to-day life. Immediately forgetting the mercy, God's great mercy and compassion and forgiveness that he extends to us. He chose to pass over our sin and to place that on Christ Jesus on the cross. And he has given us freedom and love and given us a new name and made us alive. God has made you born again. God has done this. And even as a Christian, you're going to need to be reminded of this each and every day. I'm finding it to be true for myself. My discipleship group, a few guys that I, that I meet with every other week, were reading the book Gentle and Lowly that, that uh, Jerry and I recommended you guys last year, and, and a lot of the church got a free copy of it as well. And so in this book, the author, Dane Ortland, he is kind of helping us to see this, and he's talking about the gospel and how it's always true for us no matter what. And so in one place, he writes kind of as if somebody were having this exchange back and forth. He writes, but I am a great sinner, say you. I will in no wise cast you out, says Christ. But I am an old sinner, say you. I will in no wise cast you out, says Christ. But I am a hard-hearted sinner, say you. I will in no wise cast you out, says Christ. But I have served Satan all the days of my life, say you. If you're in, in Christ, I will in no way, way uh, cast you out, says Christ. But I have sinned against the light, say you. I will in no way wise cast you out, says Christ. But I have no good thing to bring with me, say you. I will in no wise cast out, says Christ. No matter what, the gospel is true, and we need to be reminded of it each and every day of what it is that our amazing God has done. So in terms of some of those doctrines that I mentioned earlier on, there's a lot of them. There's already been the doctrine of election mentioned. There's also this beautiful doctrine of regeneration in which we see that the entire Trinity is involved. And so going back to verse 2, it says, According to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the spirits, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. This is the truth of the gospel. See, God, God the Father, has made us born again. That's what the word regeneration means, to be born again. So he has made us born again. And the entire Trinity is involved in this as well. So he says, God, you know, he's he's the active agent, so to speak. He's the one that's doing all the work in these verses. Really cool thing about the first 12 verses of 1 Peter is there's no commands that are given. Peter's not telling us to do this or don't do that. All he's doing is telling us what God has done, is doing, and will do. And so our God is the active agent. He's the one doing these things in these verses. You see, we read elsewhere, like in Ephesians chapter 1, that God has had this plan from eternity past. And he has set it forth in Christ Jesus at the fullness of time. God the Father has caused us to be born again. 
And the Holy Spirit is actively involved as well because at the moment that we believe and come to faith in Christ Jesus, we are given the gift of the Holy Spirit. Paul says in Ephesians, the Holy Spirit is a down payment, a promise of our inheritance, of our eternity with him. And so the Holy Spirit dwells within us and he works within us the sanctification process, the process of becoming more like Christ Jesus. And all of these things are done in obedience to Jesus Christ through the sprinkling of his blood, which is not only a beautiful reference to what Jesus has done for us on the cross, but it's also actually an Old Testament reference as well. And so in biblical law, the sprinkling of blood in the Old Testament was to symbolize purification. And you see it occur, occur a few different times in the Old Testament. You see it at the establishment of God's covenant with his people at Mount Sinai. You see it when Aaron and his sons are ordained. And you also see it in the ceremony of the cleansing of a leper. And so in each of these things, the sprinkling of a blood is symbolizing purification. And the blood of Jesus Christ has done exactly that for us. He has purified us from all unrighteousness. And he has given us, invited us into a new covenant in which we will spend eternity with him. And he's made us royal priests and we are found righteous in Christ Jesus because of the perfect sacrifice of the Lamb of God. This is the good news of the gospel. The sprinkling of Christ's blood symbolizes our purification. And so in regeneration, that process of being born again, the entire Trinity is involved. God has made us born again. This is good news. So first truth is that God has made us born again. The second truth is that God guards our inheritance. And so it says in verse 4, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. And so as if the fact that we have been made new and born again and, and promised all these things, as if that's not enough, we have been promised eternity, inheritance in heaven with Christ Jesus. And not only that, but he's being guarded by God himself. It's a better guarantee than the world can offer us. So as Christians, our hope is not only in what God has done on our behalf, which is an amazing thing. That's in the past. That's our justification, our regeneration. But our hope is in what he promises will happen in the future, our glorification. And when we talk about our hope and our living hope, as Christians, our hope is different than the hope that the world has. You know, the world, when it hopes, it hopes in something that may or may not be true. But for us, when we hope, we hope in what we know is true. It is already a certain guaranteed fact. So our hope is not a guessing hope, a crossing your fingers and hope that I get there hope. Our hope is a living hope filled with confidence in the living God. And our God is guarding what he promised that he will give us one day. And there's many, many uh, scriptures that speak into our future inheritance and what God is doing and, and how he's guarding it. But one of my favorites comes from 2 Timothy chapter 1. I encourage you to go back and read all of that chapter. There's a lot of good stuff. But beginning in verse 12, when Paul is writing to uh, Timothy, he says, But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed. 
And I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. And what has been entrusted to Paul and to Timothy and to you and to me, we've been given the gospel of Jesus Christ. We've been given faith in Jesus, hope in Jesus. And the Bible is clear. It calls each of us to maintain our faith, maintain our hope in God throughout our lives. But the word of God is also clear that God is guarding our inheritance. It is a sure thing because the God of himself, the God and creator of the universe is guarding it. And other passages speak to our inheritance. Psalm 15, five and six says, the Lord is my chosen portion in my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. What is our inheritance? The Lord is our inheritance. Ephesians 1, 11 and following says, In him, in Christ, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things, according to the counsel of his will, so that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. See, we have been given this beautiful, wonderful inheritance because of Christ Jesus, and it is one that is being guarded by God himself. So it's inheritance that is not able to perish, because God is guarding it. It's an inheritance that is not able to be defiled because God is guarding it. It's an inheritance that is unfading because God is guarding it. It is kept, guarded, held secure by God in heaven for you and for me. It's not like anything in this world, anything we put our hope in in this world will fade away. It will go away, whether it's finances or job or family or any other thing. But our inheritance in heaven, it will never fade away because God himself keeps it. And truth number three, God guards us for salvation for that inheritance. Verse five says who, and this who refers back to believers. So who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. And so what this passage is doing for us it's saying that God has done an amazing thing for us in the past. He has regenerated us, made us born again, justified us. He's doing an amazing thing in the future. He has an inheritance that he is keeping for us. That's our glorification. He's doing an amazing thing in the present throughout our lives, sanctification. He's justified us. He's given us an inheritance. And he is keeping us for that inheritance. And more of that, Jerry, will touch on next week. But if you are a believer, then God the Father is guarding you right now. He is keeping you. He is sustaining you. He is guarding your faith throughout your life for salvation, for your future inheritance. Hebrews 12, 1 through 2 tells us, Therefore, since we've been surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. So not only has God saved us, but he's working in us to perfect that faith through the sanctification process through the Holy Spirit. Philippians 1.6 tells us that I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. Again, God has begun an amazing thing in us, regeneration. 
but he will work through us throughout our, our entire life, sanctification, resulting in glorification, resulting in our inheritance and eternity with him. And so this doctrine that we see in Philippians and in today's passage and many other passages is known as the perseverance of the saints. It's a beautiful teaching of Scripture. Wayne Grudem, Grudem, he's a great theologian, and he describes it this way. He says, it indicates first that there is an assurance to be given to those who are truly born again, for it reminds them that God's power will keep them forever. On the other hand, the second half of the definition makes it clear that continuing in the Christian life is one of the evidences that a person is truly born again. There's lots and lots of passages, again, that speaks into God guarding us for salvation. John 6, 38 through 40, I'm just throwing these things at you, you write them down, you can come back to them later. It says, for I have come down from heaven, this is Jesus, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. John chapter 10, 27 to 29, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. See, these passages, they are a wonderful assurance that is given to us. And so our hope that Peter is talking about is a living hope. And it is a living hope because our hope is in a living God who has saved us, who guards our inheritance, and who is guarding and keeping us throughout our lives. And this, this beautiful doctrine, it doesn't let us off the hook, right? I mean, the scriptures are clear that there's an expectation that we will need to continue in our faith throughout our life. That's what 1 Peter 1, 5 is stating, who by God's power are being guarded through faith. There's a sense of responsibility on the part of the believer to maintain faith, to continue to trust in God and the promises that he has given to us. But the scripture is also clear that this God who makes these promises, he is the one who's ultimately sustaining and guarding our faith as well. Philippians 2.13 is one of my favorite verses to reference and certainly go back and check it out in the context of what's being written. But it says, For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. The NASB, NASB uses the word desire instead of will. But the meaning is the same. See, God is working in us. He's giving us the desire to obey because of the Holy Spirit. And he's giving us the ability to obey because of the Holy Spirit. And so through that, he is keeping us, guarding our faith by giving us that desire and that ability. And so what I want you to get from these first five verses today is for you to, to take heart and to have hope. Because the hope that you have is a living hope and a living God who is mighty to save and he will keep us until the end is a beautiful thing. And Peter's starting out his letter this way with the gospel and these reminders and these amazing doctrines because it is only through that living hope that you can face anything that the world throws at us, anything that the enemy has for us.
You see, the world, it can look at us and, and see how we are sustained through hardships and through trials and through suffering. And when they see that, they're going to scratch their heads and, and wonder, where does that come from? How are they able to, to go through this? You can get hard news. You can lose your job and still have faith in a God who's able to guard you and sustain you. And I wish we had more time to go in and understand these doctrines more fully. And you're just going to have to you know, spend some time studying on your own and going back to them. But even though in the first 12 verses, Peter's not giving us any sort of command. Whenever we read the scripture and we understand who is written to and why and, and what Christ Jesus has done. Everybody's looking at my son. And, and what in the world does that mean for us is the question that we have to get to in the end, Right? What does it mean? What difference does it make? What do we do with these amazing truths? What do I do now? And so I think when we read a passage like this, the only thing that we can do, just like Peter does, the beginning of verse 3, is say, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. The only thing that we have left to do when we are revealed with these amazing truths is to worship. And I found myself over the last few weeks, the more I got into this and the more I understood that God is doing everything in this passage. He has saved me. He's given me inheritance. He is guarding and he is keeping, sustaining me. I had nothing left to do but worship because my faith is entirely on God. I have a living faith in a living God. It's an amazing truth. All we can do is worship. And I think when we begin to understand the truths of a passage like this, it'll change our lives and change the way that we look at our lives and change the way that we face hardships in life. And the world will wonder at us. See, we'll get to it later on, but 1 Peter chapter 3, 15 tells us, In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. How in the world will the world ask you? How will people ask you, where does that hope come from unless they see that there is a hope? We, above the rest of the world, should be a people full of hope and faith. Because the hope, the faith that we've been given is a living hope in a living God. It will sustain us because God himself is sustaining us. He has made these promises. He will keep us throughout our lives. It's a beautiful, wonderful thing. So what I want to do um, is spend a couple minutes in prayer. So when we do so, the, the worship team can come on up. But I want to give you just a couple minutes just to pause and bow your heads, you know, bow your hearts before the Lord. Because I've given a lot of words, and there's a lot to process. And it takes a few minutes to let those things sink in. So I just want to let you sit before God. Think about the gospel. Think about the fact that God has made you born again. He is guarding your inheritance and he is guarding you. Worship him in your hearts. And then in a few minutes, I'll pray for us. And we'll pass the mic and then we'll stand and worship. So let's just bow our heads for a couple of minutes in silence and pray.